Welcome to Pod of Orcas. I'm Justin Cox, and I'm here with Kevin Campion, a CDOC Society board member. What's up, Kevin? What's up, Justin? How you doing? Pretty well. Nice to talk to you over some coffee this morning. Today, our guest is Peter Ross, and our subject matter we're going to talk about is contaminants. You've heard episodes about um, food, salmon specifically for the southern, res- southern residents, and noise. And, and um, we're, we're talking about pollution that remains in the water, t- toxins that remain in the water over long periods of time. And not only can they affect the southern resident killer whales, they can impact animals at the bottom of the food chain that then work their way up to the southern resident killer whales. Um, I saw Peter Ross talk God, year, years ago at one of the, the Orca Network things, and I was I knew about his his research and, and the issue with contaminants a little bit, but he like brought it to life in a way where I was like, I need to pay more attention to this and understand it better. And so I have done some reading about it. I would say that like of the research that happens in orcas, for me, this is like the some of the hardest to get my head around. And I think because of that, it's also like some of the most impressive research that is happening. They're not going out and he doesn't get to go sit in a boat and like watch whales, you know, like like some of these other folks do, which are they're also working super hard. But there's like this great reward. And then and there's like some intuitiveness to that research. We're like, oh, yeah, I see this whale. It's by a boat. I can imagine that that boat might have an effect on the whale. How do I measure that? Or like, I know the fish count is down because I can look at those numbers at the Fraser River. And and I know the whales are around with that. Like, how does you know, and you start parsing that stuff out. But to like look at these whales in like a big picture health way and then start imagining how these contaminants are working like it's just an amazing invisible story that Peter and, and, and I'm guessing with a team has, has dug into and, and brought to light. And it's, it's incredible how they've done that. Yeah, I, I really agree. It is harder to put your head around and Peter does a good job of kind of laying that out. Like you have the idea that a lot of the contaminants we're talking about have been illegal for for years or decades now but are still having their effect and so there's sort of like a well what do we do and what future threats are still there and how is this still affecting them and how does this go from affecting a mother to a baby immediately when it's born and starts nursing we get into all of that and it's really good so i think we're just gonna jump over to peter now who is a scientist and ocean pollution expert who has worked for OceanWise and as an adjunct adjunct professor at the university of victoria and the university of british columbia among many other things um really good speaker and communicator and i really enjoyed this conversation and i hope you do as well kevin it's been real yeah totally justin thank you man take care This series is made possible by our amazing sponsors. Shearwater Kayak Tours, Rain Shadow Solar, Two Beers Brewing Company, Deer Harbor Charters and the Averna Family, Betsy Wareham and West Sound Marina, the San Juan County Marine Resources Committee, and Apple State Vinegar. Thank you also to an anonymous donor who sponsored in the memory of Nancy Albach. We are a science-based organization on Orcas Island, and we are part of the Karen C. Dreyer Wildlife Health Center at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Peter Ross, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Good to be here. Awesome. So where do contaminants fit in with like the three kind of main threats killer whales face and how do they play off of any of the other issues that Southern residents face? 
Well, the contaminant story for killer whales, unfortunately, is a tremendously complex one. Uh, with over 350,000 chemicals on the, uh, the marketplace uh, in Canada and the United States, we're talking of, about a very, very complicated soup uh, with different emission histories, different categories of chemicals, some of them very persistent, some of them not very persistent, some of them water-soluble, some of them fat-soluble, some of them endocrine-disrupting, some of them not. Uh, it makes for a very, very complicated story. To wrap that up into a singular threat is challenging, but I think is useful because when we look at the uh, endangered southern resident killer whales that straddle the border between the United States and Canada and are at the top of the food chain, uh, have long lives, uh, large habitat needs, if we're going to preserve and protect and recover this population of uh, truly loved animals, uh, we've got to understand complexity. And we've got to put pollution or contamination into the spectrum of conservation. And that means comparing and contrasting with the two other major threats, that is noise and disturbance and reduction of prey or, or food availability, namely Chinook salmon. And I think I can safely say that most of us scientists who have worked on uh, southern resident killer whales would agree that the three threats taken together, that is contamination, noise and disturbance, and reduction of uh, food availability, represent a real and imminent danger to the recovery uh, and the preservation of this species uh, or this population for future generations. Yeah. And when you say taken together, we're talking like, not here are three individual threats. It's taken together in like the real sense of like they're they're playing off one another, right? I think if we look at the three threats, um, there's evidence to indicate fairly clearly that each threat in and on of its own uh, can can uh, reduce the viability of the population and uh, uh, threaten the recovery uh, and and uh, conservation of uh, of the southern resident killer whales. When you stack the three together, uh, you end up with potentially a synergistic situation where uh, without uh, real uh, and uh, practical solutions and practical recovery plans, uh, this population is in imminent danger of extinction. So when we're talking about contaminants, are, are we talking about things that can, that entered the water a long time ago or, and are still having a, a negative effect? Or are we talking about things that are still entering the water or some combination of both? The chemical era really began in World War II when DDT and PCBs, two of the very notorious categories of chemicals that I think most people would acknowledge, uh, that's when they began to be commercially uh, used on widespread scale. And it was not recognized at the time that they would present uh, potentially uh, very dangerous uh, implications for human health or the health of wildlife. And they were widely perceived to be uh, miracle chemicals because DDT would uh, get rid of uh, pests, uh, some of them uh, carrying malaria, uh, while PCBs would uh, allow us to uh, um, basically trans uh, transform and carry electricity safely without causing fire. So these two uh, miracle chemicals um, were uh, at the forefront of the uh, chemical revolution. And since that time, uh, we've seen exponential increase in the number of chemicals that are used 
uh, in different uh, in different environments. Some of them in homes, some of them in industry, some of them in uh, medical and pharmaceutical sectors, uh, some of them in uh, transportation, um, and some of them in uh, food and beverage safety. So we see a wide uh, range of uses and applications. Some of these chemicals have been around for decades uh, and have proven to be relatively inert and benign. Other chemicals were used for several decades and then discovered to be very harmful uh, and then removed from the marketplace. So we see a very complex overlay of different emissions histories or use histories. It makes it very, very difficult for us to uh, sort of chart the, 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 the threats to, for example, a long-lived killer whale, where we might have uh, today uh, an elderly female killer whale um, 80 or 90 years of age, who might have been born uh, right about the time some of these chemicals were, were launched into commercial use. Uh, and during her lifetime, she would have had several calves that would have been exposed to very, very high levels of some of these persistent chemicals uh, through uh, nursing. So at the end of the day, uh, the onus is on us to do a few things. Number one, adopt a bit of a precautionary approach that uh, allows us to take a weight of evidence without uh, fully knowing the implications for killer whales. Number two, uh, to uh, rank and prioritize as best we can the different types of chemicals that might uh, harm a killer whale or threaten a killer whale. Uh, number three, uh, to look at what types of chemicals might harm their food supply. Uh, for example, uh, we shifted away from persistent bioaccumulative and toxic chemicals in the 1980s in the Western world in favor of chemicals, including pesticides, that were not so persistent and bioaccumulative. And what this meant was hundreds and hundreds of new pesticides were developed over the last few decades that were water-soluble and not fat-soluble and broke down uh, uh, in, in the environment in, in some ways quickly, in some ways not so quickly. So there's been a big shift in the types of chemicals designed and allowed on the marketplace. And this is in some ways meant a shift away from those persistent bioaccumulative and toxic chemicals that biomagnified up into killer whales towards a whole slew of different chemicals uh, that are more water soluble. And they might not, we might not find a trace of in killer whales, but they may directly affect their food supply. They may affect the health of salmon, for example. So a complicated scenario, but emissions history, very, very important overlay when we look at the, the physical chemical properties of the chemical in question. The southern residents are at the top of a food chain. How, how, does, how do chemicals work if there's persistent um, toxins in the water? How does that work in, in terms of moving upward and ending up eventually at killer whale? Biomagnification is a, a real threat uh, and a direct threat to the health of killer whales uh, because, uh, simply put, uh, killer whales are exposed to and accumulate chemicals with those three properties, persistence, bioaccumulative nature, uh, and toxicity. So sometimes we in the science sector refer to these as PBT chemicals. And PCBs, DDT, dioxins, Many flame retardants are considered PBT chemicals. And what this means is these chemicals do not dissolve in water. They dissolve in fat. And so they will be attracted to organic material, detritus, 
the walls of algae and phytoplankton, uh, and they will rapidly get soaked up, if you will, at the bottom of the food chain, grazed upon by little uh, insects and invertebrates and zooplankton, uh, and then subsequently uh, be retained in those organisms as they're eaten by small fish, then big fish, then uh, eagles and killer whales. So as you go up each step in the food chain, these chemicals are not disappearing but the fats within which the chemicals are found are disappearing because they're being used for the currency of life, metabolism, growth, reproduction, etc. So PPD chemicals cause a real problem and have caused a real problem historically uh, for the last 60 or 70 or 80 years for all wildlife at the top of the food chain. So you mentioned something in passing before that the, like we have, there there are, somewhere between 70 and 75 southern resident killer whales at any given time over the last couple of years. And anytime there's a death, it's very sad. And anytime there's a baby, it's exciting. This idea that southern resident killer whale will take on these toxins and contaminants over time. And then when they have their baby and feed the baby, can you explain a little bit about what happens there? Because the idea that you're celebrating the birth of a baby, but then also the potential to pass along the accumulated toxins it's a real bummer. Yeah, the southern residents are really uh, uh, an interesting example of uh, a marine mammal uh, for us humans because uh, they really represent the most studied and perhaps the best understood cetacean or whale, dolphin, and porpoise population anywhere in the world. We know every single individual by name, uh, what they look like, uh, we, we know who they're related to, we know what they eat. Um, and so this gives us a tremendous backdrop uh, to study the animals and understand more about their ecology, their feeding ecology, their habitat use, uh, and uh, the way in which contaminants get into their bodies. For example, we know that the big killer whales that eat only marine mammals uh, and also apply these uh, regional waters are more contaminated than the resonant killer whales that eat salmon. And that's because they're higher in the food chain. Uh, without knowing uh, something about their feeding ecology, we would have never understood that. We can also, we have also demonstrated that males are more contaminated than females. And that's simply because the males have no way to get rid of these fat-soluble chemicals, these persistent chemicals like PCBs, whereas females have this wonderful mechanism to have calves, have babies, and then nurse them for a period of a year, a year and a half, possibly even two years. And if we look at killer whale milk, we acknowledge that it has about 35% fat content. So that's a very high fat content. And that's a very good mechanism for the female to get rid of fat soluble chemicals because they're in that fat uh, component. Yeah. The unfortunate part of this is that the calf is at the receiving end of a uh, wonderfully nutritious, fat-rich milk that helps them to grow, but it's chock full of endocrine-disrupting chemicals that present a problem when it comes to controlling a lot of their endocrine-mediated uh, uh, physiological processes, growth, the health of their uh, reproductive system, uh, their immune system, uh, the development of their brain, which is super important uh, as a culturally rich species. Um, so these chemicals are transferred uh, to a calf. And that calf, if we look at the concentrations, is actually one position higher in the food chain than his or her own mother. 
Is that is that a co- common like across all species, all the way to humans and everything? Or are we we're passing off our our moms passing off um, contaminants to their to their children if they've been exposed to things? Or or is it not as fat rich? Or is this this is like a I'm not a scientist, so this is a little bit of just a, uh-huh. a personal curiosity, but. That's just such a fascinating and sad thing. Yeah, I think we can safely say that uh, during the nursing of any mammal, there is a transfer of uh, contaminants. I think what's exceptional, though, with killer whales is uh, that they're very high in the food chain uh, and they eat a fair bit. They eat somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, three to five percent of their body weight a day uh, as adults. And then when they're they're nursing, the the calf. Uh, is relying on a very, very uh, lipid-rich or fat-rich diet. So uh, killer whales, uh, in some ways, a little bit exceptional in uh, their ability, if you can put it this way, to transfer some of these notorious chemicals to their calves. Uh, But we do see it uh, in uh, basically any mammal. Uh, It's just the the degree tends to vary. Joe shared with me a a paper you were a part of in around the year 2000 um, that kind of demonstrated how contaminated these whales were. What have like the, the last 20 years looked like in terms of improvement or things getting worse or things staying the same? Where are we headed with this? How are things looking? Well, with such a complex soup out there, we can uh, probably expect that the, the story for uh, contaminants and killer whales is a good news, bad news story. There is good news insofar as the levels of DDT have declined probably tenfold uh, in the northeastern Pacific uh, over the last 50 years. The concentrations of PCBs uh, we were able to demonstrate have declined in the neighborhood of three to five times uh, in southern resident killer whales since their peak in the 1970s. So with these two notorious classes of chemicals, regulations uh, in the 1970s and source control were very, very effective and uh, very, very uh, important. On the flip side, in the 1990s and early 2000s, we saw the rapid emergence of a new uh, concern, and that was uh, that related to PBDEs. Uh, this is a flame retardant that was widespread in upholstery and furnishings and transport and a number of other sectors. Uh, and these PBDEs were doubling in harbor seals from Puget Sound every three and a half years. When we say flame retardant, or we're, we're not talking about like, we're talking about something that is used in the materials to make these things, it's in there to make them less flammable? That's correct. PBDEs were doubling every 3.2 years uh, in harbor seals in Puget Sound, indicating a, a rapid escalation of, of uh, this chemical uh, into the food web. And this represented a significant and emerging conservation concern because PBDEs are very, very similar to PCBs. They're polybrominated rather than polychlorinated, and they're very persistent and they're endocrine disrupting. So when North America moved to, uh, to eliminate these from the market between 2004 and 2007, uh, we subsequent, subsequently saw that the, uh, the concentrations peaked and then began to drop again. So that was a, a bad news that turned into a better news or a good news story. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we have a number of other uh, pollutants out there lurking uh, in the shadows uh, and uh, require us to be vigilant, require us to do research and require us uh, to be uh, uh, ready to uh, make difficult decisions about best practices or sometimes regulations. 
Junior Sea Doctors is Sea Doc Society's online marine science club for kids and a gateway to science resources for teachers, such as the Explore the Salish Sea curriculum. Given a Salish Sea mystery, teams of student nature detectives set out on an evidence-gathering quest to solve it, then take actions on their own science and traditional knowledge-based recommendations to help heal the sea, with help from community partners. All this at JuniorSeaDoctors.org. If you don't keep an eye on these kinds of things, people will put bad things into the environment. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, us humans uh, tend to look at the ocean as a, as a vast abyss that is poorly understood, that is uh, tremendously capable of processing large quantities of wastes. Uh, and nobody's ultimately taking responsibility for the commons or, or the high seas. Uh, takes remarkable global uh, surveillance uh, and collaboration uh, to get the, the community of nations together to agree that we should maybe not be using a certain chemical or selling it or disposing of it, uh, and that we need to work together uh, to reduce the threat uh, facing creatures at the top of the food chain that are long-lived uh, because these chemicals move around the world with impunity. We know that it takes somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, seven to ten days for dust and metals and hydrocarbons and pesticides to move from Asia across the Pacific to the west coast of North America. We know that it takes eight to 10 days for industrial chemicals emitted in the heartland of uh, industrial USA to reach the high Arctic, uh, where it falls out and gets into the food web of Inuit peoples that rely on uh, the marine food web for a great deal of their food supply. So when we talk about pollution, it means to me that we have to balance the onus of responsibility uh, imparted by you and me and our neighbors in our communities uh, and obviously in our countries with the collective responsibility uh, of the community of nations that has to work together because uh, not only is planet earth small but southern resident killer whales are really a barometer of what's happening on a planetary scale uh, and without collaboration without uh, multilateral protection and without uh, adequate surveillance we're never going to be able to understand, let alone protect uh, southern resident killer whales uh, from uh, the threat of pollution. And then there's this other side, which is the stuff that already is in the water. Is there a way to remove that from the water in places where you identify that it's bad? Like if stuff is already there, is the damage done mm -hmm. or can, you, can things be done to alleviate that? The best, the most effective and the cheapest solution uh, is to turn the tap off at source. Once we've released any kind of contaminant out into the environment, it tends to become costly and grossly ineffective uh, at actually dealing with the problem uh, and protecting uh, killer whale habitat. There are examples of remediation. There are examples of cleanup where hotspots uh, in the US, we have uh, Superfund sites. Uh, in other parts uh, of the world, we have contaminated sites. And most nations have uh, a regulatory regime and uh, a remediation strategy that allows or enables or forces companies and governments to clean up very contaminated hotspots. That instrument is important because if we can deal with the hotspots, we can eliminate some of the lingering and persistent and ongoing sources of contamination for the wider habitat of killer whales. Um, but it is by no means easy, cheap, or 
ultimately terribly effective. It's it's simply what we must do. How, how do you collect the samples, and how do you how do you basically determine the level of contaminants in a southern resident killer whale? As a scientist in the field and in the lab, what's the approach to that? The challenge in working with uh, marine mammals and notably killer whales is that they're large, they're fast. Uh, you can't catch them. You shouldn't catch them. Uh, there are legal and ethical constraints to working with them and studying them. Um, but we have in the past developed what we call minimally invasive uh, techniques that allows us to take a very small biopsy of skin, a little bit underlying blubber. Uh, and this gives us a little, little sample that we can look at uh, contaminants in. And we can also look at their health uh, using some uh, cutting edge uh, molecular uh, techniques. So much of the work that we've done in the past has really cemented our understanding of what killer whales have accumulated during their lifetimes, uh, what this means for their health, uh, and uh, what is happening over time. But at the same time, we look for um, additional means to study killer whale habitat uh, because we feel as I think it's fair to say that we in the scientific community feel as though uh, we have a responsibility to make sure that we don't become a conservation threat uh, to add uh, to the burden already faced by killer whales. So we've studied uh, uh, proxy species or other species to get an indication of what chemicals we're finding in the food web. For example, harbor seals uh, in Puget Sound and in uh, British Columbia uh, sit at about the same position in the food chain as southern resident killer whales. And we can track contaminants in harbor seals over time and space and get a very good uh, understanding what's going on in killer whale habitat. Uh, and harbor seals are abundant. They're uh, relatively easy to handle, to capture uh, safely and ethically, and we can take uh, samples from them and then release them very quickly. So that's been a really effective proxy uh, tool uh, to study killer whale habitat. Another way would be to study sediments, uh, because sediments often retain uh, a track record or history of the types of pollutants that killer whales have been exposed to uh, over their lifetime. We can actually look at the layers of uh, sediments that have been laid down and, and track back in time and look at the history of emissions for lead, for mercury, for hydrocarbons, for PCBs, you name it. And we can basically look at how uh, you know, how the trends are looking in terms of either uh, the good news or the bad news as it emerges in killer whale habitat. Another way would be to study their primary food. Uh, about 85% of what southern resident killer, whale, uh, killer whales consume uh, is uh, Chinook salmon. So if we can uh, capture and sample Chinook salmon, we get a good idea of what the killer whales are ingesting and what they're being exposed to. Uh, and this gives us another way uh, to basically monitor uh, pollution uh, in killer whale habitat uh, as time goes on. There's widespread acceptance that the three dominant threats uh, uh, individually or collectively present uh, a real uh, and imminent uh, threat to the recovery and uh, uh, prospects for southern resident killer whales. But we also know that uh, Chinook salmon has been on the decline a dramatic decline over the last couple of decades, uh, probably due to a variety of factors, including climate change and habitat destruction, uh, as well as uh, fishing. Uh, and if we, we have um, killer whales looking, hunting further afield for fewer salmon 
that may be smaller, uh, then it means the killer whales are likely to be facing uh, nutritional stresses. And in fact, we've seen this in some uh, difficult years. We see uh, killer whales uh, being thinner, having higher mortality rates, having reduced uh, reproduction uh, rates. Uh, and we know that uh, food supply is, is a real problem. Uh, whether this uh, makes any of the other problems worse, uh, for example, uh, contaminant-related uh, uh, threats, is difficult to say. Uh, but the, the clarity uh, comes in the form of these killer whales need to eat, and they depend on long-lived, uh, trophic, uh, high-trophic-level fish, uh, Chinook salmon notably, that are very nutritious and very high in fat. You take that away from them, uh, and you're going to have uh, a significant problem, no matter which way you look at it. Is um, data collection around contaminants part of the um, like protocol for when a, a southern resident or just a killer whale in general um, dies and is stranded and available for, for testing there? There are really few instances where uh, a killer whale washes ashore or is spotted after, after death. Um, uh, but when there is... Uh, a killer whale that's washed ashore uh, that has died, uh, then scientists from multiple agencies and organizations spring to the fore uh, and secure samples to do a comprehensive investigation. The key here is to acknowledge that this animal is not necessarily a normal representation of what's going on in the real population. Uh, the animal might be old, it might have been ill, uh, it might have been hit by a boat. Uh, so this is not uh, what, what we like to see, but uh, it's, it's partly a reflection of uh, Mother Nature and uh, the natural um, goings uh, on uh, of the population. So when a, a killer whale washes ashore, um, scientists can investigate, look at pathogens, look at lesions, look at pathologies, uh, look at contaminants uh, to paint a picture of what uh, happened to this individual and use that as a tool uh, to inform as to what might be uh, happening uh, to the population uh, at large. What is what do things look like looking ahead? Like it sounds like there's there are people continuously at work on trying to make sure that we keep um, unhealthy things out of the water, but there's also this other force of um, there will always be other threats on the horizon, and we live in a place where uh, I don't know about post uh, coronavirus, but Seattle and Vancouver and the surrounding cities, these are just growing populations. These are bustling places. I don't know where scientifically and personally, where you see things going or how do you feel about it? Well, I'm an optimist uh, because I acknowledge that with bad news, we can create good news. Uh, and so when I look at bad news, I appreciate that there is power, there is strength uh, in, in that understanding, is in that illumination. And so that gives me hope. Because by understanding more about the threat posed by PCBs and PBDEs, we saw um, government agencies in, in both the United States and Canada step up uh, and uh, adopt a number of measures to uh, reduce the levels of PCBs or to deal with uh, contaminated sites. Uh, we saw more enforcement uh, with noise and disturbance. Uh, ditto, we see more enforcement and more stringent rules around whale watching uh, and other uh, vessel practices and behaviors around uh, southern resident killer whales. Uh, with prey, we've seen governments step up uh, to, to allow uh, more escapement, to, to basically reduce the sport 
uh, recreational uh, and commercial pressures on uh, Chinook salmon. So with all of the bad news in this, I, I do see hope because I see the strength and power uh, that can be imparted upon a, a, a population uh, that is endangered. And that reflects a very widespread concern on the part of the public that really wants uh, to know that governments and industry and other sectors uh, are willing uh, to spend uh, money and energy to conserve this population for future generations. It's remarkable, if we really think about this, that there are 100,000 people for every southern resident killer whale uh, in the Salish Sea watershed. That's 100,000 people per whale. So that means if we want this population to survive, we have to remember that every time we flush our toilet, every time we wash our car, every time uh, we, we uh, put fertilizer or pesticides in our lawns, every time we're washing the dishes, that the, the fingerprint or the footprint coming from our home and our activities is going to trickle down into killer whale habitat. And I think the key there uh, is for us to collectively work together to acknowledge this, uh, and that will uh, have tremendous potential uh, to uh, develop best practices for all of us uh, and uh, better waste management practices uh, in ways uh, that I think have a real chance of uh, contributing to the recovery of this population. Well, Peter, I really like that as a, as a place to end. Um, thank you so much for joining today. You're welcome, Justin. Delighted. Thank you. Bye-bye. We will see you next week when we have a very special guest on for the finale episode in this series. Please take this moment to rate and review the show. Tell some friends about it. Basically, we're a small science-based nonprofit, but outreach is a huge part of our mission, and your support in any way that you give it means a ton to us. If you enjoy this kind of science-based storytelling, you should go to our website and click the newsletter tab and get our free monthly newsletter. I think you'll like it. You can reach me at justin at cdocsociety.org and our logo was created by float.org. Thank you.